welcome to the Guinness World Record holding Bondazi Fire! That's right, ladies and gentlemen, this is Fondazi Fire, and this is a show that asks a simple question, what do you want? Our main, our main purpose for this episode was to find a way that we could honor Brian and document his contribution to the Renaissance Festival and really immortalize his legacy. I realize fully that I thrive in the environment that he had such an integral part in creating, uh, which is why I wanted to bring you guys on so that you could share a little bit more about uh, the things that Brian did while he was at the Renaissance Festival. Uh, to have this conversation fully, today we're joined by a very special guests. Today we're joined by Rich Shepherdson, who is the owner and operator of the Riddle Booth, as well as John Bear, who is the king of the Minnesota Renaissance Festival. Welcome, guys. Thanks for joining us. Well, I think that's really great, Adam. Thank you so much for letting us do this. I mean, it. one of the problems I... I one of the things we've been talking about in the guild and, you know, I, I've done this for uh, coming up on four decades here um, and Johnny almost as long. <laughs> uh, and uh, one of the things that always bothered me is there is a serious lack of institutional memory. The only memory we have of this place is the people to the left that still remember the stories. And, <clears throat> you know, the problem, of course, is with like all oral traditions, the longer the stories don't get told, the more they degrade when they are told, um, and the harder it is to get hold of people to understand the context of what's going on. So I think this is fantastic. I think it's, it's, it's a fantastic uh, way to use a medium. You found a, w a way to, uh, to approach people for us old guys who, uh, who are lucky enough to have the technology work for us when we push the button. One of the things I remember, I remember really well is when I was getting ready to go from, you know, the, this character I had done for decades, right? The crazy road prince, you know, that kind of playboy prince. And, you know, and I remember talking to like a whole bunch of the, you know, of the, you know, the, the, the statesmen, you know, and saying, Hey, here's what I'm thinking of doing. I really feel like I need to make this change. And I remember talking to Brian about it and he, he gave me a lot of insights in terms of how to do it you know, how to take it from the extreme. And then he gave me some Shakespeare to practice as well too. And we did that, you know, he gave me one of my, he gave me one of my, if I call recall correctly, he gave me one of my, one of my favorite, favorite pieces. And it's from Henry four. And it's, it's the one that goes in like bright metal on a sullen ground. I know you all and will a while uphold the unyoked humor of your idleness. Yet herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that when he pleased again to be himself, being wanted, 
he may be more wondered at by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapors that did seem to strangle him. If all the year were playing holidays, to sport would be as tedious as to work. But when they seldom come, they wish for come, and nothing pleaseth like rare accidents. So, when this loose behavior I throw off, and pay the debt I never promised, by how much better than my word am I? By so much shall I falsify men's hopes, and like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation glittering over my faults shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. I'll so offend as to make offense a skill, redeeming time when men least think I will. One of the most astonishing things about Brian was, uh, and, and most people don't know this, he uh, he went to seminary college. Um, you know, I heard that. He, 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 you know, it's, he was, I, I, my, pers- my perspective on Brian's a little bit different than most. <clears throat> Excuse me. I met him my first year out there when I was 19 years old. He'd only been out there a couple years himself. I'd hooked up with people he'd already hooked up with. They were already all friends. And so I got to have an immediate camaraderie with a guy and immediate sort of um, um, peership with him because we were all kind of crazy together. The kinds of performing we were doing was guerrilla street theater and uh, Brian was doing squint back in those days before he even joined the Irish cottage. Uh, we made him an honorary member of the thieves guild because he was a highwayman and we figured we should take his take too. Um, <laughs> the thieves guild. Yeah, the thieves guild. Wrong. Um, <laughs> there's some of us left. <laughs> Me, Jacques, Oh, that's it. <laughs> and we're done. <laughs> and we're done. Um, one became a Morris man. That was really weird. One became uh, the tax collector to the mayor for a long time. That was pretty awesome. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but we we immediately um, bonded with Brian on the street. And our, our street characters got along great. And then we started partying afterwards. And, you know, I've been hanging with him since 1983. Wow. And uh, he uh, he did go to seminary school. He was very serious about it. He went there for five years. They forced him out of the school because he didn't want to leave. He found an environment that was really inspiring to him. Um, but he was also, I've, I've never seen anyone so sucked into Shakespeare. Yes. Like like Brian was. It's it's rare that you find that. People do talk about the sort of um, the cliche, if you will, of the starving artist. In almost every way, Brian was that starving artist for me and, and was the first person I'd ever run to that lived his whole life through his art and only his art. Everything else was a complete disaster for Brian. Uh, his love life, whatever. He even had the requ- unrequited love requirement of any sonnet writer. You know, that's really what inspired him to write so many sonnets. Was that great unrequited love of his life? Um, it was a kind of weird way to be inspired by someone who essentially sacrificed everything for what he felt the strongest, even if it was going to be unrequited. 
that expression was so important to him that that part wasn't the relevant part, that it was unrequited. It was that the love was there, you know, and to be able to express that in iambic pentameter for him was the greatest thing. His, his knowledge, of course, of Shakespeare is quite encyclopedic. Um, and it was very interesting to watch him go through a transition because yeah. this word became really personal for me. And so we've got so many different stories across a great length of time. But my time with him is mostly concentrated in those last few years. And it was very, very intense. Um, but he did all kinds of great things. Um, I, I talked about this before. I had done the show for 10 years. had done all kinds of completely insane, stupid street stuff by myself with these people. Never had any real direction. Had all kinds of kooky characters. And when Walter came to me and said, are you, you know, do you enjoy doing what you're doing? Well, it's all right, I guess. And he said, I've got something that might be more interesting. He suggested coming to join him at the, uh, at then the Wizards booth um, and do stuff there. I just had to come up with some kind of fantasy character. And when Brian saw that character for the first time, that first year that I showed up with it in 1993 with my, my home-built fake teeth back then, <laughs> um, he, he really went out of his way to tell me how much improvement he saw in what I was doing, that there was more direction in what I was doing. It's not just madcap zaniness. There's focus to it because you've got a character to hang it on. And I really lived and believed that character, and he helped me understand that's what I was doing. I mean, what you're talking about is I think the – the real be the real beauty of Brian. And if you ask anybody that has ever interacted with him in the early days of their time out at festival, it's one of the things that they point to mm. is that he was always, he was always trying to elevate the other person. He was yeah. always willing to help. He, he is like the kindest, most gentlest soul in the whole world. And when you saw these different iterations of his character, right? You know, squint, yeah. da, right? You know, to me, the one that just like speaks his embodiment and his elegance and his grace and his poeticness is Shakespeare. Watching him at the end of every season is 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 remarkable. It's moving. It's be just beautiful. Brian is. Uh... Brian was also our friend down at the campground. So he camped with us in Pagan Oaks. We called him our token Christian because um, he was the only one in Pagan Oaks. Um, and we had a lot of fun with that. He, he, uh, he participated with all our joint cooking because we do joint cooking down there for those who don't, don't uh, party in that neck of the woods. Uh, we've been camping together there since 1992. Um, 13 different campsites. They're all in their own wow. little thing. So I love hearing about like how Brian was able to help some of your guys' character development. I was wondering if either of you had insight into his own character development. Yeah, actually, I have a lot of insight into that. Ooh, um, I don't. At least as far as the last two characters he came up with. Could, oh, no, um, just for, you know, the historical record, what yeah, were all of his list. characters? Yeah, I'd love to hear what the list was. So the first one I ever met was Squink. And I'm, I'd have to ask Walter to be sure if there's anything before Squink. I don't think there is. And he was teamed up with a little kid. I can't remember the name of the kid, but one of the things about Squink's character is he had a patch over one eye, which is crazy stupid. He got rid of that pretty fast. Um, Jacques can tell you all about wearing a patch over one eye all day long. It'll make you walk lopsided. Um, and you can't pee straight. Um, it's awkward real quick. It's right, especially at those troughs. I mean, you know. Um, <laughs> right. 
but uh, after Squint, he did Da, which was the father of the O'Brennan clan at the Irish Cottage. And then um, after that is when he started doing Shakespeare, I believe. I'm trying to remember if there was another character in there. He, he did like to change it up. But once he got to once he got to Shakespeare and was involved in directing the court, he kind of had a path. And it was in a lot of ways the the thing he did best. And a lot of people perceive it that way. I remember um, when he first became Shakespeare. Remember he, he shaved the whole front part of his head? <laughs> yeah, he shaves off piece of his yeah, head. He was all in. Yeah. What's really frightening is years after he stopped doing the character and he's still at the closing gate doing the roses routine, right? He would Which still day? shave his pate for one freaking day. Yeah. Every year. Yeah. No. Yeah. Lunacy. It is dedication. Um, and that, that's what it is. <laughs> that it's, was it's, Brian. It's, it's, yeah. It's a kind of lunacy. The guy would sleep on a wooden floor because at least it meant he had a place to sleep. You know, it didn't bother him to sleep on a wooden floor. That was fine. You know, the kind of spirituality he practiced, the kind of Christian, uh, Christian spirituality he practiced was um, very self-effacing. Okay, he didn't take on airs. I mean, he had an ego. He's an actor, but um, he is he was incredibly self-effacing for that. And he was a very. um, I don't want to say meek because that's really not the wrong It's really the wrong word, but there was a a, a passiveness to him. There was no violence in him, although he could be angry. The whole show runs on the principle that we all know what we're doing and we'll just make it work. Um, and there's some truth to that, but that is not the way to run an organization. And people like Brian were the backbone of that. Um, yeah. there were a lot of different backbones we've had over time that had varying effects on the cast, but I can hardly think of any that were more profound than Brian's, uh, because he, he touched so many people. He was involved with Academy for so long. He was the part of our, our troop that understood the authenticity of the Elizabethan style. He was the one who understood the language. He's understood the mannerisms. He actually worked with me um, when I was in Comedia because I wanted to do some street poetry. Yeah. He gave me so much information. Like he had packets at the ready. He was very excited to hand them over. There was, it was, it was great, but the thing was like, I felt like I was letting him down because when it came to the actual time of the interaction, Everybody just wanted dirty poetry. Right. And I'm like, I'm not honoring all this wisdom that was passed to me because the audience is asking for baseness. Because the audience makes me do dirty stuff. I know. But he would tell you, pay attention to the audience. Yeah, that's you know? totally so, true. Yeah. So uh, to continue the litany, at the end of that, uh, he was the director of the court. He was playing uh, William Shakespeare. Um Johnny, correct me. Was Richard's name Michael? I can't remember the actor's name. Yeah, it was. It was Michael. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So Brian gets eased out, uh, and he is completely devastated. He is bereft. This the one thing he loved more than anything else, including poetry itself, was doing this show. This show defined him in every sense that was important to him, and he really felt the lack of it. Um, he felt he was never coming back. Having said that, he, he'd only quit the show about 12 times to my recollection at that point. And he always came back. But this time it was real and it was really hurting. And because it was his it was his toy. The court was his thing. You know, he, he made that so visceral, so real and kept it all together so well and really set a bar 
that was very hard for everyone afterwards to follow. And, and there have been some great people afterwards, obviously. I've, I've met them all. They're very nice people. But Brian was special in that respect, and he felt very hurt. And he didn't know what to do with himself. And he told me in confidence that he, is, he couldn't write poetry anymore. He couldn't do his sonnets. And uh, I'm like, that doesn't make sense to me. Never you, been writing, you're the only person that does write sonnets anymore. You, what do you mean? You've lost your mojo? And he said, basically, yeah, that's exactly what's happened. And I said, well, have you thought about trying to write something else? And he goes, I don't know what to write. And I said, um, I need more riddles. Why don't you write riddles? And uh, <laughs> he wrote a terrible riddle. <laughs> it was so bad. But he got better. My name is Rich Shepardson. I've been a performer at the Minnesota Renaissance Festival since 1983, and it was my proud distinction to work, and still work, in fact, manage the and direct the um, Riddle Masters of Hollow Hill. Brian uh, Murphy, who was a deep, old, dear, close friend of mine, worked for me and the rest of the Riddle Masters as his last function at the Renaissance Festival for several years until he had a stroke. And we would like to read some of the riddles of the many hundreds that he wrote for us and that he has uh, given to us in perpetuity to continue forward his, uh, his love of this art form called the riddle. Some of these are for children and some for adults. I leave it to you as to which is to which. Who hunts in the night? Who's confused by the light? Who flies and who spies with large luminous eyes? Who, tell me, who is wise? He got he got better, um, and uh, you know when when he he uh, started writing for us and he joined the troupe, he came up with his next character, and that was Coot the Younger. Uh, he played a very old old man with a pillow on top of his head. That was his hat, and uh, sort of purple um, drawers of pants that kept perpetually kind of just falling down. Um, and his father was Coot the Elder, who was actually old. Um, versus Coot the Younger, which only appeared to be about 90. Um, and, and he would move like an old man, and he would do it. So the first thing we do with the new – to talk about transitions, he goes from being the director of a group of people to being junior man at Riddle Booth. Now, and we all like Brian. We're all personal friends. There's no one here who has not known him for years. Uh, but his performing is not up to our standards, and he can tell that we're not, we're, not, we're not happy with what he's doing. But he, no one wants to say anything to him because it's Brian. Well, I don't have a choice. I, it's my group. If I don't talk to him, no one's going to talk to him. And I looked at Brian. I said, Brian, you know, um, you're, you're a really good performer, as you know. I don't have to tell you that. You've known that for years. You don't need that for me. But uh, we have to work on how you perform riddles because it's a totally different way of performing. He goes, well, what do you mean? I go, well, for one thing, you keep getting the audience to come back. <laughs> After a while, we want them to leave. You won't let them leave. You think the idea is to keep the audience here. It's not. It's to do some riddles, entertain them, and tell them to fuck off. We actually have riddles. It's true. We have riddles specifically written to design to annoy people so they'll go away so we can start fresh with a new audience. Then we can do some of the other riddles again wait a second hold on do you say those whenever i come around that's what you do don't you 
Actually. <laughs> what the hell? Answer this riddle that's posed now to you. I never deal with one, save when I deal with two. I draw things together. I split things apart. A paradox, yes, but such is my art. If you cut off my head, I commence to depart. But he was brilliant. I, I, I said all this to him very straightforward. I didn't hold his, my, my feelings back at all, and I just expressed what he had to improve. And he just sat there and went, thank you, good direction. And then he changed it. And he worked hard That's to make awesome. it better and better. And then I'm curious, do you know what some of his favorite riddles were? Actually, he liked a lot of his kids' riddles. His kids' riddles, I think, were um, probably the things he did best. And the ways he interacted with children, especially as Mr. Sticks, which was his last iteration at the Red Booth. Yeah. Um, thank God, because Coot the Elder was killing him. He's, like, walking around like a little <laughs> man everywhere. He'd go to the front gate with a little riddle sign. It'd take him half an hour to get the front gate. And then he'd sit there and do riddles for a while and then take half an hour to walk back. So he'd be gone for the first two hours of the day just because he's walking like an old man. Mm-hmm. So I was very happy he came up with a different character. Everyone else was, too. That guy used to spit. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Circling back to what you said earlier, like that, that quiet demeanor of Brian, like my first memory of Brian was seeing him as Mr. Sticks. I think the first season they brought that character out. And you just see this man with all the confidence in the world wearing green spandex tights with all of this ornate uh foliage (laughs) all over him and gray hair gray white hair and i'm brand new performing i was just like holy christ if someone can have that kind of balls yeah just all the confidence in the world just walking through festival i was like you know man with that character I remember seeing it and just smiling and he looked at me and I didn't realize Ryan actually really like knew me because he looked at me and he goes, you're going to love this. And he shows me like that. The thing he was wearing was a bath mat. And I yes, it was laughing. He goes, I knew you'd love that. And he like, it was just one of those like, oh my gosh. It's a costuming thing. So I feel like most- Ryan saw all of the people more than any he of did. us realized. He is an observer and he saw all of us because there was one day when the riddle booth was being set up, it was morning, I was walking past on the way to the Fondazi stage and he just very quietly in his very quiet, very peaceful way said, he called me over and told me that he was really proud of how much we'd grown and that he was like, I can't repeat it because I'll cry, but it was like being seen to that degree by somebody that you respect that much is just one of the most magical things that can happen. Uh, That speaks of Brian. I mean, that's the way that he was. It was like, you know, I mean, he would, he was, I just know from like my, my experience with him in that super hard, hard transition, of going from one character to another character. He was incredibly supportive, amazingly supportive and gave suggestions as well and advice and feedback. And, you know, in terms of, terms of, in terms of supporting what I was thinking of, of, of doing in that. And then also too, when he took over the court and I was the, um, you know, I, I was like the only one 
that remained of really of that group for the most part. You know, there was only a couple others, I think, that stayed after George retired and I was the only one. And, you know, and and being a part of that, I just kind of went off and I was given given the opportunity to go off and do my own thing as as the prince, but still kind of remained attached to that. And he was, again, incredibly supportive. Like I like I said before, um, I wish with this conversation, I wish we could talk to everybody that Brian has touched and all and encompass all the different ways that he's influenced the Renaissance Festival, both from the performer's point of view on how we all interact with each other, how the festival is set up, how the patrons interact with us and the experience they have. I wish beyond anything that we could we could have all of that stuff in one place, but I know it's beyond what we can accomplish with this podcast. So I just hope that people that listen to this are able to get just a taste of how much uh, Brian was able to contribute and impact the culture, the environment, and just the full magic that is the Minnesota Renaissance Festival and how much that has to do with him being there, him contributing to so many artists that are out there. I just, I hope these stories help to immortalize him and honor everything that he did. Uh, having King Henry here, John Bear, and having Rich here who runs the Riddle Booth, I feel like it's such a great way to encompass the various roles that he's performed during that time out there and get those interesting and intimate uh, insights into how he was as a person and as a performer. I mean, we, we, we like to talk a lot about legacy, right? We like to talk about the legacy and the history of our festival because it is so wonderful. There are so many wonderful, wonderful memories that come from it. Enduring friendships. Sometimes we find love like, you know, some people we're looking at right now. And, and, and when you when you look back at the beginning of it, there's a handful of names. You know, there's Lee Walker, there's Gary Parker, there's George Herman, you know, there's Brian Murphy. And there are so many of us that have been directly impacted by Brian, but also too indirectly impacted by Brian as well, because those of us that have been carry it on, we carry it forward. You know, Brian is always, Brian always comes from a place of elevation of his other performers. He listens, he helps, he coaches, he supports, he gives direction. He provides insight in terms of what makes you a better performer, because then it helps him become a better performer as well. And I think that is the wonderful thing that is Brian. He, he is, he is a quiet, thoughtful leader in our festival. And his space and, and the space that he occupied in it is vacant and it's been missed. You know, it, I, I say it again, my favorite role in seeing him become that, become Shakespeare, 
he absolutely embodied that man. It was like if somebody said, "Hey, you know what? I'm gonna re- I'm gonna clone Shakespeare. I'm gonna take his DNA. I'm gonna mix it up in a blender, and I'm gonna make this. You know, I'm gonna remake him again." It would be Brian. Yeah. We actually talked about that earlier. Mm-hmm. I said that it felt like he is a time traveler because he pulled Shakespeare out of the past and set him in the midst of us, and then he taught us everything that he brought forward with him, and now we're carrying that into the future and he will live forever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. When he would recite Shakespeare, you could tell that this man was not remembering something that he read. He was recalling something that he felt connected to something that he almost created. Like he was pulling it from the depths of himself as he was reciting Shakespeare. It was incredible to listen to at closing gate. You can feel the love in it. It's palpable. It's absolutely tangible. You can feel the love in it. And that's why, that's why for those of us that had the good fortune of witnessing that performance, it's unforgettable. There's not a dry eye in the, on the grounds when you, when you see it. The truth of it is actually more than uh, just the heart that he brought to that and the real love that came to that, but it was truly understanding all the words he was speaking. I mean, in a real sense, yeah. he was a true thesaurus and a real dictionary of a man, and an encyclopedia for that matter. One of the first <laughs> ways we bonded was uh, over his intellect. He would, he's, One of the things he would say about working with the Riddle Booth is, you know, Every time I do a riddle and you guys all just look at me like I'm crazy because you all figured out the answer right away, um, I, I'm pleased by the fact that I don't have to explain my reasoning because you all got it right away. It was, it was, it was <laughs> it, for him, it was like he was in a nest of people who were of like intellect, who were fascinated by the word, who loved to draw out from people from the use of the word the emotion they desired to bring out of them. So when he performed as Shakespeare, that came out in the four. But the same thing was true when he did Mr. Sticks and looking at a small kid and going and doing one of the children's riddles. It, it, it was just as real, just as poignant. And while the word choice is simpler, the way you put it together was the same kind of brilliance. And it really connected with those kids just the same way his you know, more intellectual processes worked for adults yeah it's a love and thoughtfulness Mm -hmm. that was coming from the heart in all his performances if you take me from the back of the hearth it becomes one bloody chamber after another if you take me from the front of the hearth it looks for all the world like all the world can't think of a better legacy you're right. I, I think that the number of people he touched, because I think about this from time to time after having doing it, doing the song so long, you know, it's, like it, you, you, it's hard to fathom exactly how many people you've affected by your performance. But if you think of the total number of people that come to that gate every day, over how many years, over how many weekends, and how many of them experienced that performance and walked away with knowing that was what Shakespeare was like. I would say the number was in tens and hundreds of thousands at this point. It's it's absurd. I would I would really like to hear about some of 
the other experiences that people have had with Brian, like Chris and Teresa, I heard something about an Elmo story. <laughs> I really need to hear about. Chris, you have to tell me. I thought you said elbow. Elmo. Elmo. E L M O. Elmo. Oh God, no. Yeah. No. Uh. Uh-uh, no. No. Please. No. You have to hear the story. I'm honestly not sure where it came from, but BJ. My friend BJ and Brian, we were all sitting at Irish Cottage, and they found a child's Elmo costume from Halloween. And Brian, uh, hey Brian, pulled it on over his head like a hood. So it, it looked like oh, a yeoman's hood with Elmo. <laughs> and then BJ started doing the God, Elmo voice. skinned an Elmo. <laughs> They did, and BJ was doing Elmo's voice, and he did a very scary rendition. But he's like, "Why does Why does Elmo have Shakespeare in his butt?" In my memory of it, it's just Brian looking so pleased with himself. His cheeks were rosy. He had the biggest grin, a sparkle in his eye, and he's just standing there with the little Elmo head on top Uh, of his own head, just beaming, standing tall in the doorway of Irish Cottage, and looking at all of us like, "Yes, I have arrived." Are we telling any after-hours stories? Because the Battle of Birun was a big deal. Does anybody remember the Battle the of Birun? I think you should tell that. Nobody else knows about this? I need to hear this. Well, no. Thing, uh, I don't know. We apparently were in the right place at the right time for, like, years. Yeah. 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 It started because the BLT, the, the BLT ran out I, of beer. I remember that now that you said that. The BLT ran out of beer. And it was, it was like, 10 o'clock, and everybody was like, boo, you know, game over. And they're like, well, we don't want to broach a new keg because it won't sell. So Brian stood up, took off his hat, and he threw a 50 in it and said, come on, everybody throw in, we're buying a keg. And they bought a keg, and they, they drank it all night, all day long. And I mean, <laughs> there was like 30 people trying to drink this keg dry, and they, they finally polished it off about midday the next day. And but, so year after year, there would be the storytelling of the first Battle of Birun, and then the initiation of the next chapter of this episodic journey through <laughs> killing kings. Yeah, I mean, I was sitting nice. in the BLT when it happened. Well, he had a lot of things like that. He yeah. he set up the breakfast at Bernie's yeah. afterwards that went on for many years. Oh, yeah. the breakfast. I you miss the breakfast. breakfast so much. Adam, did you ever have breakfast? I've heard about that stuff. We used to do a champagne yeah. breakfast. Mimosa. The, the Mimosa. Monday after the final weekend. Yeah. Yes. Well, once we lost Joanne. The caretaker Joanne, who used to live yep. in a trailer right behind oh, Bad yeah. Manor. She was in, uh, instrumental in making that happen. Lady and Bedford. Well, basically what she did is she went around to all of the different food booths and got all the food uh-huh. at the end of the show that they were going to just throw away and they got them to give it all to her. Uh-huh. And then she and usually Brian and a bunch Dane of other people would go people, into yeah. Bad Manor's yeah. cookhouse and cook it all up. Yep. It was amazing. And then give us free. You had to have little wristbands so they knew you were old enough, even if they knew who yep. you were, and they made people volunteer and stuff. And I did a lot of cleanup crew on those because that's what I'm good at. <laughs> Throwing away garbage. <laughs> but it was well worth the way people would just line up, and it would be just a big social party waiting in line to get breakfast. And we'd all just kind of scatter around the King's Arbor and on the green and eat breakfast. Well, one other thing Brian used to do, he used to MC the talent show mid-run. Oh, yeah. Big time. Oh, yeah. And he used to go up there with Tim Wick, and, and they would MC. Oh, Steve, well, Steve Bruce. Bruce, you're right. Tim Wick came later. Yeah. So it was him Bruce. and Steve Bruce. In fact, Steve, Steve one time said that he would do the, uh, he would do the talent show any time that uh, really? Brian wanted to host it. 
and uh, a couple times Brian quit hosting and ended up hosting it anyway, and Steve would just keep showing up. As long as Brian was hosting, he would go. But he used to tell this story, and it always sticks in my head, and he, he told it a few times, and I feel like there's a joke there, but I don't get it. <laughs> but it was talking about my brother was a hairy man, but I oh my God. am a smooth man. Am, yes, this is a classic. And I, he would do it all the time. At least he did it a few times that I remember. It, it stuck in my head all these years, and I don't understand it. <laughs> it it's, it's, it's a piece from the 60s. Um, and as I recall, I'd have to double check with Jacques, but I'm pretty sure it comes from Buckminster. Okay. Oh. <laughs> So you're not supposed to understand. <laughs> That's fair. It was a 60s. Yeah, you had to be high when you heard it the right? first time. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. Oh, we have a this beautiful box. I don't know. Like, it could have been, like, something from World Market for all I know. But it's beautiful. And it's, it was something that he gave us when Chris helped him move. And, like, it's been this piece that I, like, take care of and treasure because it's very special to us. Yeah, it's a... I understand. Beautifully yeah, carved little box. Yeah. You know, he literally would give you the shirt off his back. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I, I, it was funny. Well, I, was li- I was looking at different posts that people made on the Facebook page, and it was astonishing how many people he would give an article of clothing to, and they would look awesome in it, and he'd give it to Aww. them. They were just yeah. borrowing it for one occasion or another, and he goes, you look so good in that, you should just keep it. That's where I got all of my top hats from, was from <laughs> Brian. A hat. Yeah. Yes, he literally came up to me and put him on my head and says, "That looks much better on you. You should keep." Hmm. So what? What kind of seminary was he at? I'm just curious because I. Oh, um, it's actually it's local, and uh, uh, the name will come back to me in just a second or two. Uh, I believe he was at Bethel. College. Okay, he just like yeah. I, it, he's just such a kind soul. I was just curious For to know. Five years, and he was such very serious. About yeah. It. Uh, we used to have protracted theological conversations all the mm-hmm. time. Uh, what with me being um, a recovered Catholic and a and a and a, uh, and a priest and a witch, and and he being this uh, strange version of Protestantism that uh, that just uh, piqued my interest, yeah. we had a lot to discuss. And as I said, he was the token Christian in Pagan mm-hmm. Oaks. Um, we we uh, had uh, many different occasions where the cover I used to be with that uh, used to be in that area and did blessings at festival along with the Morrismen and stuff. Um, he participated in that stuff with us many, many mm-hmm. times. Um, so he was a deeply spiritual guy. It's just he wasn't a proselytizer, which is, makes him the best kind of Christian. Yeah, I mean, he actually, like, he, I knowing he that about him him. makes sense, but he just embodied that sort of charity and kindness. Yeah, you had to really get close to him before he talked. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. It, it wasn't a thing he wore on his sleeve at all. Um, he really took um, seriously the uh, the part of Scripture where it talks about let not the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, he did not believe in uh, vain glories. As yeah. Point. That's so cool. Which makes an interesting contrast to a guy like to get dressed up as uh, Darth Vader and get sued by uh, <laughs> Star Wars for showing up in front of movies and trying to get people to go see that. Oh, movie. no, really? But it's a contrast. It's a contrast. The, to tell us the way he did this? <laughs> yeah, when, when Star Wars first came out, he I got very heard about into this. the scene. It's true, and he uh, built his own uh, Darth Vader costume, and then I believe it was the Edina movie theater. My my memory is a little bit hazy about the old theaters. I only I only lived here since '75, so I forget some stuff. And um, 
but he would uh, no i take it back it was at Southtown. And, uh, and he would go to the movie theaters and when they were selling tickets for Star Wars and he'd walk people, he'd go and talk to people up and down the line as, uh, as Darth Vader. And uh, after a while, he actually got a letter from Lucasfilms uh, because they didn't want um, the non-sanctioned Darth Vader's out there. And they understood he was a big fan and all, but this was long before conventions had started being a thing. I mean, they hadn't even really had a serious Star Trek convention by 77. So no one really had an idea of cosplay or anything, but he was very forward thinking in that respect. No, um, but yeah, he did desist. He just sort of changed his outfit a little bit. But outfits were always a thing for him. Um, the most infamous story about Brian, in all likelihood, in regards to costuming, would be the uh, duct tape incident. So he's got this outfit. He has not been able to sew it together. He didn't have access to a sewing machine, but he's got this new character. I can't remember which one it was off the top of my head, but it involved a bunch of tights and different things, and he didn't have a good way to attach them all together. So he decided he would super glue it all together. And so he superglued the tights up the back and the seams and all around, and he's got this whole shirt thing going on, and it's all just sort of glued together, and he's now inside it sort of hermetically sealed. And at the end of the day, he's thinking he's just going to cut himself out, and it'll be good. And he goes out cavorting, and he's doing a sort of spirit of nature thing, not really Mr. Sticks, a little more wild puckish sort of thing going on there. And uh, so he's out there cavorting, and what a surprise at festival. It rained that day. And while it's <laughs> raining all over him, it uh, started dissolving the glue. And um, so pretty much okay. after five or ten minutes of being out in this torrential downpour, the costume sort of just starts dissolving into a puddle around him until he's just got this green goop that he's got held between his two hands just sort of in front of his junk as he's trying to backpedal his way into the Irish cottage, uh, where they discovered they had enough duct tape to sort of put something together. Oh, no. He, he kind of went around the rest oh, of the God. day in sort of a green nappy sort of look. But it, was all, it was all really in the face. Oh, wow. Exactly. And, and you just got to keep performing. You got to do yes. anything. And he was great at that. He was very unflappable oh. in that respect. Unflappable. <laughs> And that is the epitome <laughs> of live performance. <laughs> oh, I love it. It was a lot of fun watching him go through his roast and be so embarrassed by the flattery of all the women because he, he would, you know, he was such a, um, I don't want to say he was virginal because that's not true, but he was pure in the respect that he, while he could have a lascivious thought, he would not think to utter it unless it was really appropriate. <laughs> I mean, like, succinct, you know, or as a great gag, but never just to be lascivious, not just to be lewd, you know. That the yeah. shock value was not important to him; it was the humor value or the or the poetry value. That's what was relevant. Um, so he was very much romantic in that respect, but it was kind of a pure, chaste, white rose sort of thing versus the hot passion that most people kind of had. But he always had it very deeply felt. At least that's how he expressed himself to me. Thank you so much, Rich, for sharing all that with us tonight. Well, it's deeply personal, I get that. But, you know, I don't think that people, I think people have a particular vision of people. They see them as a, a character, especially <laughs> one who profoundly affects other people this way. And I think it's important for us all to remember that there's a person there, and we don't all get to know those people all the time. Yeah. And I was just very fortunate to get to know this very strange, broken, brilliant, bright 
light. That fearlessness that he had and approached that with was just awe-inspiring. We need more like Brian that can agree. just be out there elevating everybody and all ships rise together. And I think you're right. Elevating is the thing that he did that, you know, he, that's, that's why he gelled with us so much because that's so much about what we believe. We believe the audience is smart. We, we play to them to be smart. He played to them to be smart. And, and having that respect for them and bringing all of his game all the time, that, that's, that's what I want to see from everybody. I want everybody to be a Brian, you know. Well, he didn't just... Talk down. He didn't do that. Yeah. Um, when you talk about him talking to people as if they're smart, I started when I was 14, and he talked to me like I was an adult. And I remember he was one mm-hmm. of the only people who didn't really placate to me because I was a kid. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, he, doesn't, he never talked down to kids. No, he didn't. Uh, that's one of the things I recognized him right away. And it's something we share because, of course, the troll plays with kids so much. Um, but he, he's, we're both all there when we're dealing with a kid. It's all about the child. And we understand their sense of wonder. And I think that, that's, in some ways, I think why we were kindred, kindred spirit is because I try and remember that all the time. He lived it better than me, don't get me wrong. But having being able to tap into that sense of wonder that children have and using that in the performance and drawing them into what yeah. they're doing because you also have a sense of wonder in what they're doing, that's, that's a remarkable gift. And he had that in spades. And it came out every time he did his, his stuff with kids. It was great. I really treasure that our kids got to know him that way through the Riddle booth being right next to us. That is one thing that when he <laughs> when when he was no longer a fixture at the Riddle booth, the kids noticed. And, and they asked about where he was, and it's they miss him. This has just been absolutely amazing to be able to reminisce about all these things that Brian did. I do want to be respectful of your guys' time. I know it's really late on a Friday night for us all right now. Um, just thank you from the bottom of my heart and thank you uh from everybody that's known brian and thank you so much to brian himself for being himself thank you brian thanks brian thank you brian well brian i'll tell you what i've always said is um you're always deep and close to me and i'll see you in the lanes my friend i'll see you in the lanes you have no idea how much it meant and we all just love you so much and thank you all for being a part of this. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Uh, I just want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to this podcast, who wanted to know more about Brian and wanted to honor him as we do. And while we know that Brian's life has touched thousands of individuals in very unique and lasting ways, and that his contribution to the Renaissance Festival will live on forever, we know that this podcast can never do full justice, that we love Brian and hope that this podcast will somehow give him at least a glimpse of the impact he has and he'll know how much we've appreciated knowing him. Thank you all. See you in the lanes.
I shall not say goodbye, because I know that you are always with me, and we shall meet again. My lords, my ladies, I give you one of the great, William Shakespeare. Sir Kane said everything I wanted to say. <laughs> Luckily, I have something to fall back on. They are not long, the weeping and the laughter, love and desire and hate. I think they have no portion in us after we pass the gate. So. <laughs> they are not long the days of wine and roses. Out of a misty dream, our path emerges for a while, then closes with the dream, within a dream. Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you. We're all spirits and are fading into airs into thin air, and like the baseless fabric of this region, the gorgeous palaces, the cloud-capped towers, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherits shall vanish, and like this unsubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Adieu. Adieu.